Well, good lunchtime. Good lunchtime. That is the time it is. As I speak to you now, it's sort of pre-lunchtime, really, in uh, in a sort of more gilded, decadent age. This would dish. This would be the time uh, at which pre-lunch drinks would be served. Maybe um, a sherry, possibly even a glass of uh, champagne, served in a, a crystal, quite shallow champagne glass but as it is i've got a cup of coffee i've got the bank holiday jumbo crossword in front of me which uh which is incomplete i've as things stand i've i've filled in one clue three letter uh solution five down popular music standard going up i think that's rap don't think it's a great clue i don't think i'm gonna i'm gonna gel with the the setter today but that's neither here nor there This is episode 21 of First Draft, the voice note that's not a podcast. Uh, By any definition, legally, this is not a podcast. It's just a voice note to you. Um, For reasons that are really soon, uh, I'm going to reveal to you. It's quite exciting, actually. There's a new thing that I've done or am doing that's going to be out really soon, along with... The Old Essex Dogs, which is my new novel. There's another new thing that's coming within a week of Essex Dogs. So, yeah, get ready for that. All up in your area and grill. Um, But that's not what I want to talk to you about today. It sort of is, but it sort of isn't. Um, Last week, I did an Ask Me Anything thread about writing tips, because this is something that people have, have inquired about with some regularity since I've been doing the old substack um and it, i keep i keep putting off answering questions about the writing process because i i sort of feel like the majority of people reading the substack are maybe not writers but i think there's a, a sizable majority who are so look if you're not a a writer b an aspiring writer or C, interested in any way in the process of writing, you can stop listening now. Um, Just go and do something better and more productive with your day. Um, Go spend some time with a loved one. Go call somebody you haven't spoken to for a while. Pet your your familiars, be they people or animals. Uh, Jump in your car and go for a scenic drive. Um draw think put your phone down i don't care what you do your 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 options are are really limitless but if you are if you do fall into one of the categories of people who are interested in writing and the other two things keep listening i'm going to answer as many questions as i can and and at some point i'm going to i'm going to put down probably a slightly more structured um written response to this and maybe keep it as an open thread on my Substack, so that people who are interested in writing can sort of get their heads around it a bit. In the original post, where I, I asked you to submit your questions, I also linked to a great, great Twitter thread by a writer who's uh, who laid out the sort of nuts and bolts of getting published in for academic books versus trade books. And when I say trade, and I might use that that phrase here and there in the next half an hour or so. I'm talking about 
books what you see in Waterstones or Barnes and Noble, basically. That's what that term means. Anyway, I, I, I highly, highly, highly recommend that if you are if you're thinking of either getting published for the first time or switching from academic writing to uh, trade writing. That's a great place to start. And I might refer you back to that thread uh, if necessary in the next half an hour or so. But, okay, let's just go. Jack, Jack's first question was, how the hell do you get started? Jack says, I've got a solid idea for a historical fiction series. I've got scraps of paper with notes, notes on my phone, hours of daydreams on the topic, but irritatingly also a job that takes most of my time and headspace. Any tips on how to actually get the writing process underway would be fantastic. Also, do you write solely on a computer or by hand in the first instance? Let me sip my coffee uh, and then answer those questions probably in reverse. I write on a computer now. I make notes on my phone. I very occasionally write by hand. When I was a student, so about the turn of the century, we, I didn't write anything by, on the computer. In fact, we weren't allowed. We submitted all our essays when I was at Cambridge. They had to be handwritten because our exams were handwritten. And it was a great process. Or the, the Part of the learning process was supposed to be that um, you learned to make an argument... A well-structured, well-argued um, case. You learned to make it first time. Does that make sense? So there was no sort of uh, you know splurge down to paragraphs, cut and paste, wisdom all around, edit on the fly. You you started at the beginning and you could write from start to finish an argument, and that's a great skill to have. And I've retained that uh, throughout my career. And I found that in most of the forms that I've written, be they journalism, uh, long form, short form, other types of writing, uh, the ability to hold in your mind a, a structure and then write to that structure so that it's largely the shape you, you want this piece of writing to be first time around. That's, that's invaluable. Saves a lot of time. Um, on the other hand, it is somewhat perverse to live in the age of the word processor and feel that, you know, one must adhere to the old-fashioned rules. There are some writers around. James Elroy's, uh, people, regular listeners will know I'm a big Elroy fan. Elroy still writes by hand on legal pads, but then someone types it up. Um, I, can, I can and sometimes do write by hand, but I find that actually I can also type faster than I can write now. So I'm a computer user. Uh, but I'm also, that being said, a, a, a structuralist in most cases. And uh, so I, I tend to set a structure and then write to it. I'm not just sort of randomly splurging stuff down and then giving it shape as, and as, as a totally separate process. Um, but to Jack's question of how do you get started... Well, the unhelpful answer is the analogy with uh, how do I get better at doing press-ups? You do some effing press-ups. That's what they say on, on my Peloton class. Uh, and there's, there's many versions of the same thing. How do I get better at running? Start running. Um, how do I start? I mean, you just start. But that's, that's also fantastically unhelpful advice. I recognise that. Um, so what are some good tips? Well, you, will this be helpful to you because you want to do historical fiction? It might be. One way that you can start is by not sitting down and trying to write your 
um, your final draft first. Uh, there's a phrase which is, don't get it right, get it written. So set yourself a manageable goal of, I am going to write, say, the first chapter. And that chapter is going to be, say, 2,000 to 4,000 words long. Choose your number. Don't say 2,000, 4,000, but say, let's say 2,000 words long. And these three things are going to happen in the first chapter. And then that is your goal. And you're not going to do anything else with this project until you have achieved that goal. Um, that's, that's a, I suppose, an example of a broader rule, which is breaking big tasks down into small tasks. And I find that in almost all writing that is of any any size, that is a, a very good working practice to say, you know, I know, for example, that I've got volume two of Essex Dogs to write, ideally by Christmas. And if I think about that too hard, I get a sort of uh, a sick feeling in my stomach, even though I know I'm perfectly capable of writing 100,000 words between now and Christmas. Uh, the, the prospect of doing all 100,000 is somewhat daunting. But if I think, well, next week I should really write chapter one, I know I can write chapter one probably in two or three hours. And so that's a manageable task. And so long as I've achieved that by the end of next week, then I know I'll be on course and I won't, um, I won't pollute my head with uh, panic. So, yeah breaking down small tasks and actually being started you know if your small task is look i've got all these ideas buzzing around now i'm going to write chapter one let's go then that's that that's both uh, a solution to the that answers both of the suggestions i've got which was the just fucking start and break your big task down into small tasks hope that helps jack Next, next, next. Chris Ball 4 says, I'd be interested to know more about your emotional response to your writing publishing process. I've started saying process instead of process, and I don't know why. I don't know when this, this transition happened, but I definitely do it now, and I'm not sure why. Sorry. Having been lucky, lucky enough to publish a book last year, congratulations, Chris Ball 4, I'm constantly surprised by my own emotions. Writing the last words, seeing the cover, all these moments were expected emotional triggers. But the bigger picture is the fact that you've revealed something of yourself, that even when hiding behind historical facts and writing non-fiction, you are exposed. There's something of you in that book that you've given away. Oh, someone decided to mow a lawn, so if you're a rumbling from now on in the background, that's what it is. Sorry. Uh, and your readers are free to have their own emotional response to your writing. I've developed a whole new respect for writers, especially writers of fiction. Writers are brave. How's your emotional response to your own writing changed? And has it taken more courage to write fiction? Great question, Chris Paul Four. I always said I wouldn't write fiction because I thought I'd bring shame on my family. And that was a sort of a cowardly uh, excuse for saying I, I don't think I can do it. Um, I thought, I also used to say, and I, I actually still hold by this that it's much worse to write a bad novel than to write a bad history book. A bad history book in general means you've just, done, you've just got some things wrong, um, probably matters of fact uh, or lines of argument. If you write a bad novel, I think... I mean, putting aside, you know, on the sentence level, um, if you write a bad novel, I think it might just be a sign that you fundamentally misunderstood what being a human's all about. And that's, that, for me, would feel very, very disastrous. Uh, I, as regard to sort of emotional response to your writing, if I think back over the course of my career, and I've written, I don't know, 13 or 14 books, I think it's 13, 
Um, I used to, the, the main emotional response to having completed a, uh, a task was relief. Just like the exhaustion, the emotional and intellectual exhaustion it took me to complete even a, like a chapter or even just a day's work was vast um, with regard, you know, in, con- in the context of my uh, emotional, intellectual stamina, which you have to build up like physical stamina. And uh, I just used to feel very, very relieved. Now, being somewhat more experienced, that's been replaced by, on the one hand, a sort of a more detached ability to assess the goodness slash badness of a, a bit of writing that I've done, of, of whatever length it might be, um, and not to feel, you know, to, to have a sort of a relatively restrained emotional response to that to know how to fix things if I don't think they're good, uh, to know what to remember to bring into future projects if I think I've done something right. Um, <sighs> writing Essex Dogs, the first novel, though, I, I definitely, because it was the first time I'd, I'd written a lengthy piece of fiction, you know, anything above the short story level, I definitely felt a much, much uh, deeper and rawer emotional connection with the writing because, as as you said, you're putting more of a different side of yourself into the story. And particularly when I was finishing Essex Dogs, which would, would have been February this year, uh, the last chapter of the book, I was very, very... Emo- I was writing quite fast, but was very in with the characters. And the characters had been... were sufficiently uh, independent of me that I was now just following what they were doing rather than forcing them to do things and they were surprising me and doing things I didn't expect and I found myself in tears a lot when I was writing the last three chapters and particularly putting the last words down I was in bits absolute bits um yeah 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 that's uh, that's all that's that's true and then even on the editing process process going back through the books like two three four times each time i got to the last three chapters it was the same you know because the story builds to this this crescendo and you've got sort of deep um i don't want to spoil the story for you but there's a there, there are sort of small instances of heroism and apparently small instances of uh, of callous betrayal and misunderstanding in a way that uh, I found absolutely heartbreaking because I was so attached to the people who were who were doing them, you know, the characters I'd created. I really felt a sort of empathy with these characters and what they were going through. Um, and I'm sure if I read the book again now, which I need to before I go off on book tour on the 5th of September, I will feel very, very sort of emotionally charged when I read that and probably burst into tears a few times. So, yeah, I know what you mean, is the short answer. Susan Pringle, I'm researching and writing my MA dissertation just now. Congratulations. I would like to know when to stop researching. I never seem to know when I've done enough. Even though I have enough evidence to support my argument, I'm always wondering if I've missed something. Something which perhaps could disprove my argument completely. 
I'd also like to know how to deal with a lack of motivation when you have a deadline looming. <sighs> well, I, you know, there's different different types of writing. I've never, in non-fiction, been a do all my research, stop, do all my writing. I know very successful writers who, who work like that, and I know very successful writers who work like me, which is the opposite. I research, generally when I start a project, I research for like a couple of months, and I read for a couple of months, until I have this feeling, which now I recognise, which is I need to start writing. I see where the book starts. And I usually wake up with a sentence in my head. You know, I can quote most of the first sentences of most of the books I've written. And they've, they've been very important. So I remember with Plantagenets, I just, I got to this point where I was like, the prince was drunk. I knew it had to be the white ship, and I knew it had to be a sort of drunken party. Um, Hollow Crown, she was married in the soldier's wedding. I knew that as soon as I, I like got to the point where I was reading about the marriage of Henry V and Catherine de Valois, something just clicked and I could see the scene and I started writing. I was nowhere near the even the middle of the research, but I, I needed to write in order to keep my sort of forward momentum on the, on the project as a whole going. So I'd, I'd then write until I ran out of material and then go back to research, write, research, write, research, write. And that's pretty much how I go. Same with, you know... Trying to think of, uh, you know, the Templars. It was a foul morning in Jaffa when the pilgrims came out of the church. You know, I, can, I could just see that. Uh, I, with Crusaders, Roger, uh, King of Sicily, lifted his leg and farted. I, all of these... All of those first lines, when I woke up with that line in my head, I started writing. And, I was, and in none, none of those... Uh, cases was I anywhere near the end of the research but that's my process uh, yours might be different and I can't really advise you if yours is different because I don't know how you would know when you'd read it, everything you needed to I just don't I don't know um, I think the sort of the the sort of the gnawing fear that you've missed something will never leave you you just have to learn to live with that and accept that you probably will miss things it doesn't make you a bad person or a bad historian just be open and honest about... I, I think I've done as much as I could find at the point of writing, but I, I'm, I'm always willing to be proven wrong. The, the only sort of intellectual crime you can... or the, One of the big intellectual crimes, I think, in history is refusing to accept that you're wrong. Uh, it'll just blind you and, and make you a sort of an inferior... Scholar, if if your attitude is here's what I think, here's the, as best as I can work it out. I, this could be total bollocks, but I, I at the moment can't see any other way of interpreting this. However, show me a piece of evidence, and I'll to the contrary, I'll change my mind. That's the attitude you've got to take in. If it's like I I've done it, this is it, I won't hear an, a word said otherwise. That's when you're in trouble. Um. Uh, Amy Rodriguez says, "Okay, as an amateur starting from scratch, what are the best free places for primary sources on Tudor era events and characters? I'm digging with no direction, so I'm starting to use the BHO letters, Google Books. How do I get to open archives? The good stuff, the insider stuff, the Taurus aren't allowed. Only serious historian goodies. Um, well." I mean, if you're talking about actual archives, it's free, I think, still free, to use the National Archives in the UK. Um, 
there are many, even, you know, if you want to use the Royal Archives in Windsor, you have to go through a, a sort of a long, boring, formal process. But it's like you, could, you just find the archive you need and, and apply to go and use it, if, you, if that's what you're talking about. If you're talking about, hey, what are some great resources online? Well, just trying to think. Uh, if, you, if you're after, like, cr- sort of chronicle sources, administrative sources, from the Tudor period, you're probably looking at a lot of the records that were transcribed and published in the 19th century in which case archive.org will probably hold most of them because they're out of copyright and will have been digitised by usually big American libraries. And then you've got got libraries like the British Library and the Archive National or Bibliothèque Nationale where huge, or, or not huge, a growing percentage, a growing small percentage actually of their... Uh, holdings is a rapidly growing small percentage of their holdings uh, are digitised manuscripts and those are freely available online so keep digging I say Julia Dietz your friend of mine says say I'd written a little something but I feel too vulnerable to put it out into the world how do you overcome that you must have had some of that with your foray into novels well yeah to slightly rehearse what I, what I began with uh the emotional obstacle to the fear of getting it wrong was, for me, the biggest thing. Um, uh, as regards to sort of slapping your piece on the table, you just got to get it out and slap it on the table, I'm afraid. Um, it helps to have a certain... And this maybe this only comes with experience, but I've certainly got to a place where there's a, a detachment between my own self and the published author thing or broadcaster or whatever um and and so i view the writing not as as kind of i i have a sort of i'm a bit compartmentalized so i don't allow the kind of reception slash critical judgment of the work to i don't confuse that with the reception slash critical judgment of me, the person. Um, I think it would be a disaster psychologically to do that. So you say, well, look, here's a piece of writing I'm going to put out there and see how the writing itself is received and judged. And don't confuse that with, here's a piece of writing I'm going to put out there and see how I, I, the person, am going to be received and judged. Those are two separate things, completely separate. Um, Don't mix them up. Just do it as well. Just fucking do it and stop going on about it as well. You know, that's like, that's sorry, that's not like hostile comment directed to you, Julia. This, that's just a hostile comment, uh, commentary directed at people dilly dallying about anything. Shut up and do it. Come on, get a move on. Or don't do it, but shut up. Shut up talking about it. Uh, that's, that's the kind of brutal motivational talk god damn it shut your mouth and if you're going to do it do it if you're not get out of the way um does that help that's probably like crushingly unpleasant advice i apologize who's next 
Um, who's next? Shannon May has asked a similar question to uh, to Amy Rodriguez, and I think the answer sort of stands. There's tons, and Shannon May's question was about ancient history masters, uh, good sources for research when you're not in Europe. Yeah, I think big library websites, archive.org, um, for out of copyright volumes of of sources. You know, for example, with ancient history, you're probably going to be needing a lot of the um, the Loeb classics volumes. Most of those, you, you well, you can either subscribe to Loeb, or you can find a lot of them for free on archive.org. Tons of stuff online. Jessica Corsi, what are the advantages and disadvantages of a publisher versus independent publishing? How much do you typically make off a single book sale? Good question. Right. Well, let's, let's again, let's answer those in reverse. Single books. So with a publisher, your contract will have a sliding scale of royalties on every book. So it'll probably start typically around, it could be 8%. Some of the foreign, foreign deals would start at 8%. Low end 8%. Of uh, of so of sold price per book, high end fifteen, uh, ebooks twenty would be industry standard. These are percentages of the the sale price that you, the author, receives. Receive independent publishing versus publishing. Okay, independent publishing advantage um, access to market extremely easy. You can just go ahead and publish, basically. Um, so, you know, you can, you can cut out the things like, oh, look, a little grasshopper has landed on the seat next to me and is doing grasshopper noises. You can cut out, uh, what people might find a laborious or intimidating task of getting an agent, finding a publisher, all the contract stuff. You can just go ahead and publish. That's the advantage of independent publishing. Um, you can you can probably publish on subjects that a uh, uh, mainstream publisher might find too arcane to consider. The advantages of a publisher are that you have an infrastructure that will guide and shape your uh, your work. So you have, for example, an editor who will work with you on uh, on the, the structure shape. Um, clarity of your storytelling, of your work, who will work with you. I've had editors who've, who've worked with me on a sentence level, you know, ripped every page to bits and rebuilt it. Uh, I've got, I mean, I work with, how many, seven, two, three. I work with sort of three editors on every book. So I have an ed- a, stru- a kind of, a while I'm writing editor, who does all the work with me on kind of structure and shape as I'm going, and I, I talk to what I'm trying to get something while I'm while I'm working. So that I have a I have a while I'm working editor. Then I have two once I've written it editors, one in New York and one in London. Uh, and then tip so typically it goes to New York first and then to London. After the New York edit is done, that would so I, I have three editors between two different publishing companies. Um, so you've got the, the benefit of 
at least one editor and sometimes more. You have the benefit of then the what in magazine or newspaper terms would call the sub editors, so copy edit, um, proofread, fact check, all that kind of those kind of departments. What a publisher would typically employ for you. Um, you have the benefits then of the let's go sell this departments, uh, marketing, sales, sales, marketing, publicity. Um, so sales will be like okay, they're going to get you into bookstores and once and within the bookstore will be you know hopefully negotiating you a good position in the store on the table which shelf is going to go on you know is it going to be in father's day mother's day promotions all that kind of stuff your um marketing team will help push sales online and uh you know if you if you look at the stuff i'm doing with essex dogs at the moment got an amazing marketing campaign going in the U- in the UK where we've got big window art displays going in shops around the country that's that's a, a big marketing campaign then you've got your publicity people who who will try and get you reviews and so these these are all and and interview slots so these are all parts of these are all things you don't have access to when you're self-publishing and will have to do completely on your own now the, what we should also say is that in most instances you still have to do all of these things on your own when you're with a publisher. You know, the most successful authors are those who uh, who are self-motivated self-publicists and self-marketeers and, you know, and who will not pass a bookshop without going in, asking if they stock your work, signing stock that's in the shop, you know, that, that this, I still do all that stuff. Um, so, I mean, I, I, uh, I think if you're serious about a career in writing, it's, uh, I think uh, the mainstream publisher has a, has a massive amount to offer you if you're, but there's, that's not to say that I'm not knocking self-publishing at all. Um, lots of questions from Tom Schwartz. How do you start the process? Uh, we've kind of answered do you start scribbling notes while you're driving and ideas hit you audio notes? I sort of, I've got Matthew McConaughey driving around in his, what is it, Winnebago or whatever it is, his big camper van thing with his microphone rambling away to himself. I don't really do that, actually. Do you start writing at the same time every day, says Tom? Yeah, I'm, I mean, when I'm, when I'm working, I've got a pretty strict routine. It goes up early, exercise, take the kids to school, sit out at my desk and work till lunchtime, then do a couple more hours in the afternoon and then do one hour, nine till ten at night. And that is a routine I don't mess with um, because I know it succeeds and it's actually a job. Um, And I used to lie to myself unbelievably when I started. Oh, I'm not going to work today, but I am going to work tonight. Oh, maybe I'll work, like, I'll get up early tomorrow and write, you know. No, like, if you have a set routine, you know when you're working, you know when you're not working and you just stick to it, it's easy. If you sort of don't have a routine, you just basically don't do anything. Um, I'll skip a few of your questions if you don't mind, Tom, because uh, I've answered a lot of them. Um, actually, no, I'm going to skip all the rest of them because I think I either have or will answer all of them in the course of uh, of the next few. I'm going to answer. Actually, my voice is going. I've had a. I've been ill for, forever, and. My voice has really suffered because of it. So I've probably only got five or ten minutes more talking in me. Uh, so I might do a part two of, of this voice note if my voice goes. Apologies if it does. 
Um, who's next? Uh, Michelle Marmela Pedro says, my daughter's written four books, would love the chance to publish them. Uh, so this is a good example of go read that Twitter thread I uh, linked to. Um, that will explain it. Uh, that's uh, and the link is in the in the the original. When, so where you've posted your comments in that article, where you posted them below, that's where the, the link to the Twitter thread is. So I highly recommend that. That'll answer most of your questions. Um, Deborah Roll, I think I've answered your question about researching and writing. Why are you not reading the Essex Dogs audiobooks, says Danny Yarracruz? Um, well, because I, I'm a very competent, I think, non-fiction reader, but I'm, there are pros reading fiction where you've got lots of different voices. And we've got an amazing, amazing actor called Ben Miles who's read the Essex Dogs audiobook. Ben Miles is an old-school legend. I mean... Ben Miles is in The Crown. Ben Miles read Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall. Ben Miles played Cromwell from Wolf Hall on stage in London. I mean, ben, ben Miles is a don. And I feel absolutely bowled over, lucky to have him, having done it. So uh, he, the answer is he will do a magnificent... Uh, sorry, he will do... He has done a much better job than I could ever do of this project. And so that's why... Um, and then Danny also says, uh, I was hoping for that to be my consolation prize after the now not-so-regular not-podcast first draft. I think in 21 days' time, Danny, you're going to be... Uh, you're going to have a much bigger consolation prize because the cool thing that's going to launch on just after Essex Dogs will keep you very well... Uh, keep your ears lubed with, uh, with my beautiful voice. You're going to like that. Um, Deborah, how do you deal with writer's block on the one hand and editor's neuroses about deadlines on the other? Um, I've never really experienced writer's block to the the point where I, I don't think it exists. I believe that writers get to a point where they can't write, but I don't think that's like an independent pathology no it's writer's block I, like it's a sign that you have it that something's not worked yet in your process and either you haven't done enough research or you don't understand your story but those aren't like an independent thing called writer's block those are um those are things you can deal with and address you just need to, to sort of work out what it is that's that's not happening um and editors and neuroses about deadlines, I'll tell you how I deal with that. It's because um, I've, I sort of work on multiple sides of publishing. I have a, a role as a publisher within my UK publishing company. Um, and I know why we have deadlines. We have deadlines in, in trade publishing anyway because it's a business. And businesses have budget lines. And um, so, for example, if I miss my deadline on a book so that the book doesn't come out because there's not enough time for everyone else to do their bits of the job and we miss my slot in September where I usually go that then means that could mean in my case like I don't know a a million quid missing from a 
from a budget. And that, with an independent, a relatively small independent publisher, might mean people lose their jobs. So my way of dealing with it is that uh, this isn't a sort of notional date that an editor has chosen in order to be neurotic. It's a, it's a business, it's a deadline that has business repercussions if I miss it. That's, that's my way of dealing with it. Uh, now, obviously not everyone's deadline is um, is of that nature, but the way the, the, the sort of takeaway lesson for it is uh, from it is there's a reason for a deadline and if you understand that reason then you won't think the deadline is something to be resented and something totally arbitrary there's a purpose and there's a reason why that date exists so think about that reason not just hating the date how do you deal with proofreaders says Deborah I hate them uh, again understand why they're there if you if you imagine how your work would be if you didn't have them it would be worse that's why they're there they're doing their job and they're good at their job and they're better at their job than you are at their job so respect them for it um translate the book into other languages yes or no i feel that off the much of the richness is lost from the original language well that's i think that's obviously true but what do you want people to read it with sort of 90 percent of the richness or no one to read it at all i think it's not a difficult decision um any tips or tricks for staying motivated says eva sawyer uh i'm well known for starting a project with an astonishing amount of gusto only to lose steam just before i hit the end uh also any suggestions for creating some sort of schedule or list of deadlines to hit in order to stay on track so you don't have to scramble at the end to hit the final deadline well, look, I think usually most people's experience with deadlines is the volume of work increases towards the deadline um, and work expands to fit the time available. Um, and often people will front-load projects with motivation and then find it tiring once they get towards the end. I think that's a normal experience. Um, staying motivated, ask yourself, why are you doing it? What is, what's my higher goal here? Have it run, and write it. Write it down, a short phrase written, pinned on the wall, so you can look at it. If you need to do that, I just think... <coughs> excuse me. My voice is definitely going. Um, yeah. Remind yourself why you're doing it. Excuse me, one uh, second. 